Okay, so just out of curiosity, because I was going to use it and then I'm not, and so I'm just curious how many show of hands. Has anyone read the book, um, Lamb, the Gospel According to Biff? Okay, good thing I'm not using it. Did you really read it? Is that not a scream? It's a hoot. Don't get it and get mad at me because it is, it is, um, yeah. Biff is uh, the best friend of Jesus growing up, and he's resurrected, never mind. Um, it's, it's a, it's non, let me start by saying it's fiction. It's not real. It's a story. It's funny. And there's a great scene in there with Sermon on the Mount, but we're not going to do it. So, um, um, I played baseball. Uh, from the time I was moved to Florida, and we moved to Florida seventh or eighth grade, and and played all the way through the first two years of college, and um, when I first moved to Florida, I didn't. I played stickball in in New York. I didn't know what baseball was. We just played stickball or stoop ball, um, and we didn't have a real baseball. We had a, a pink Spalding um, ball, it was pink, and that was a stoop ball. It was also the stickball, and they were a quarter. Um, if you paid for them in the corner store. And um, uh, so I grew up with that, and we grew up with bases as cars and manholes, and you didn't slide because you're in the middle of the street. And, and so that's kind of how I played. And then seventh grade, I went out for baseball, and I stunk. I, I was horrible, I, you know? And, and so I worked hard my entire middle school years, junior high school years, to get good. And the reason why wasn't because I really wanted to be a good ball player. It's really because I didn't want to be a bad ball player, right? Because if you're a bad ball player and you hang around with good ball players, you feel, well, you, you, you feel really dumb. Or left out. Left out. That's a better word. You feel really left out. And, and those of you who do anything for a hobby or for fun, uh, whether you any golfers in here, right? Golfers? Uh, what's your handicap? That's, see, there. So when Reed plays golf with someone who's really good, you, you realize how bad you are, and you, you look at these people who are good at things, and you know that they're just out of your league. Those of you who play tennis, same thing. Those of you who are artists, and you go into the Museum of Fine Arts, and you see that stuff, and you just realize that, they are just way better than you. And I tell you all of that because in the first century, like how I tie this all in? It's spring, or he's got to bring baseball up. Um, in the first century, there was a group of people, men, all men, no women, who were the best at being religious. They were the best at, they were, they were spiritual elites. They were the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, the problem with us is that we automatically think the Pharisees and scribes were bad. They really weren't bad. They were just overly religious. They set up all these laws which made it impossible for the normal, average person to be um, spiritual. And if you've ever played baseball or golf or with someone who's way better than you, I think they get a certain kick read, right, out of letting you know how much better they are than you at what they do. And they do it in little passive-aggressive ways, right? And that's what the Pharisees would do. They wanted everyone to know that they were better at being religious. 
that they had an inside track. And so they would pray in public with a great flair. They would give with trumpets blowing. They would uh, fast and look miserable so that everyone would know that they were suffering. And that was the culture of the religious community in the first century. And what ended up happening because of that culture, most normal, average, everyday folks like us felt left out. Felt that we weren't good enough because there was no way we could measure up to those people, the Pharisees and the scribes. They were the elite. And they made sure we they, they made sure the normal, everyday people knew it. So on that scene, Jesus appears. Now, we don't know, unless you read Lamb, um, the Gospel according to Biff, we don't know a lot about Jesus' boyhood. Um, even when you read Lamb, Gospel according to Biff, you don't know anything about Jesus' boyhood. But we know he came from a blue-collar working family, in a backwood town of Nazareth and where nothing good can come out of. That's what people said. And he shows up on the scene and he is one who teaches with authority. He is one who now has a reputation of a great teacher and of a good preacher. But more than that, he heals people of all sorts of sicknesses and all sorts of diseases. And so in this little um, community, around Galilee and in the, in this, the land where Jesus um, lived, uh, word traveled quickly about this guy, Jesus. And the thing he preached and taught about most, it seems, was the kingdom of God. And you have to imagine that if you were not one of the spiritual elites you wanted to hear about this kingdom of God that this ordinary, nobody, blue-collar family from the middle of nowhere and the backwoods who had no history, no tradition, no formal education, you wanted to know what this man who could teach, who could preach, and who could heal had to say about the kingdom of God. And according to Dallas Willard, who is a phenomenal author, Willard said there were two burning questions that people wanted to know that were not the elite. They wanted to know, one, what was the kingdom of God really like? And two, who would qualify to get in? Word gets out that Jesus is going to teach on a hillside in the town of Gal- outside of Galilee. And thousands of people come from all around to hear this sermon about the kingdom of God. Okay? Set that up. You with me? Now, oftentimes when we hear the Sermon on the Mount, we think, for some reason, that it's like the handful of people 12 plus a few. Thousands of people. And you have to know the crowd that Jesus was preaching to. Because if you don't know the audience, you won't understand a lot of the message, my opinion. 
Richard could tell you one of the hardest things to do is to preach to a congregation if you are a visiting preacher, right? When you don't know the story of the congregation. You don't know what's going on in the life of those people that you're trying to preach to. So it's hard to frame your sermon in a way that people will understand it. Correct? Martha, correct? It's difficult. So you got to understand who the audience was. And to do that, we need to turn to Matthew um, chapter 4. This is prior to the Sermon on the Mount. And we are told, we're hinted at who these people were. Jesus traveled through Galilee, teaching in the synagogues. He announced the good news of the kingdom and healed every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread through Syria. People brought to him all those who had various kinds of diseases, those in pain, those possessed by demons, those with epilepsy, those who were paralyzed, and he healed them. Here's the key. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from the areas beyond the Jordan River. So, so you get a sense uh, from Galilee, very Jewish area. So there are a bunch of Jewish people in the crowd. The Decapolis were the 10 um, cities. They were a Greek area uh, that were settled by and ruled by Alexander the Great. They weren't Jewish. They weren't religious. They weren't pure. They weren't clean. And they weren't holy. Then you have Jerusalem. Then you have Judea and the region across the Jordan. Now, so you have this, and the way the Greek word would be translated, you have this mishmash of people. You have people who have nothing in common. You have people who are hanging out with people that they're not supposed to hang out with because no good Jew would sit next to someone from the Decapolis because they were unclean. You didn't have many of the religious leaders in that group because they didn't want to be around Jesus because he had already begun to gather a reputation that, um, well, that he didn't really approve of how they were doing their thing. These were mostly the, um, the losers, the outcasts, the slaves, the poor, uh, the people who had no authority, who had, they were just not, in the eyes of the culture, the best of the best of the best that hung out to hear the Sermon on the Mount, okay? Now, I think it's important for you to understand that background because it shapes how I understand the Sermon on the Mount. And it especially shapes how I understand the Beatitudes. Now, you have to understand, the way I understand the Beatitudes is probably not like most of the way you have heard them taught. And I, and I can't help that. You, you don't have to agree with me. You can disagree. I've struggled with this to come up with something that to me, given that crowd, would make the Beatitudes make sense in what I've studied um, over the years, trying to figure out what was Jesus really doing. And so if I ruined your Christmas uh, when I first got here by telling you that the wise men weren't in the nativity scene, 
if I ruined your Christmas by uh, proclaiming that Jesus wasn't really born in a barn of a stable, probably, I may ruin your Beatitudes. So if you don't want your Beatitudes ruined, you may now leave. Because it won't be like what you're used to. Okay? Yeah. You don't care, do you? You kind of care? But you're staying. Good job. I love you. Okay, so I'm going to read um, the Beatitudes out of two different biblical versions. I'm going to read the more traditional one um, out of the uh, RSV. And then I'm going to read one that I, out of my Bible, the Common English. And I think there's good points in one and really bad in the other. Okay, so we're going to do the RSV first. I had to find my RSV study Bible from Perkins. Did you use that at Perkins? Not that one. It wasn't out yet. <laughs> um, it was printed in 1946. <laughs> It was. It's actually 1971, this one. So, Okay, so seeing the crowds, he went up the mountain, and when he sat down, disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, These are the ones you know. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil things against you falsely on my account. Those are the Beatitudes. RSV. Nicely done. These are the Beatitudes in Common English Bible. <clears throat> Absolutely butchered, um, part of them. Instead of blessed, Common English uses the word happy, which is so not close to being correct. I cannot understand how they did that. Happy are the people who are hopeless because the kingdom of heaven is there. Happy are people who grieve because they will be made glad. Happy are people who are humble because they will inherit the earth. Happy are people who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness because they will be fed until they are full. Happy are people who show mercy because they will receive mercy. Happy are people who have pure hearts because they will see God. Happy are people who make peace because they will be called God's children. Happy are people whose lives are harassed because they are righteous, because the kingdom of heaven is there. And happy are you when people insult you and harass you and speak all kinds of bad and false things about you, all because of me. Common English. Just so you know, in, in, in Lamb, the Gospel according to Biff, they're in a hotel room and they're writing the Sermon on the Mount. Biff and Joshua. Joshua was... Jesus, and um, um, it comes to 
uh, Biff says, well, what about the Beatitudes? And, and Joshua says, huh, what are those? Oh, yeah, the blessings, because they weren't called the Beatitudes until later. And so I laughed out loud on that. And they said, what are we going to give the meek? And Joshua said, well, how about a good attaboy? <laughs> so, isn't that great? <laughs> and the persecuted, you know who they went? What are we going to do the persecuted? Well, let's give them the earth. Well, we can't because the meek array have the earth. Um, I know, let's give them a fruit basket. <laughs> so, anyhow, um, so I digress. But uh, here's my understanding. Here's a, I found these. This is a great understanding of what I think the Beatitudes are. Blessed are those who don't have it all together. Blessed are those who have run out of strength, ideas, willpower, resolve, or energy. Blessed are those who ache because of how severely out of whack the world is. Blessed are those stumble, trip, and fall in the same place again and again. Blessed are those who on a regular basis have a dark day in which despair seems to be a step behind them wherever they go. Blessed are you, for God is with you. God is on your side. God meets you in that place. The gospel is a counterintuitive, joyous, exuberant news that Jesus has brought the unending, limitless, stunning love of God to even us. That's my understanding of the Beatitudes, basically. We have to remember that the Beatitudes are not a prescription for happy living. Okay? They are not a condition for how you enter into the kingdom of God. They are not a list of how you should be, in my opinion. Jesus is not giving um, an instruction. He's making an announcement about what the kingdom of God will be like. And he uses that to set up the entire Sermon on the Mount. And if you've uh, heard any of the sermons, it is my understanding of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is saying, this is what the kingdom of God ought to look like. And the kingdom of God is not something out there. The kingdom of God is here. And it is as followers of mine, you are responsible for ushering that kingdom in. Remember that whole eschatology thing? So that's the understanding. I'm going to approach the next five weeks, four weeks, however many we're going to have. We're going to do two a night. The Beatitudes. They are not to say, man, you are in the kingdom of God when you are persecuted. Or if you're mourning and grieving, then that's a good thing. Or if you're poor in spirit, you go. It's not what it is. It is an announcement of how the kingdom is and who gets in. They are not characteristics, in my opinion, of how you should be. Now, that goes against what you have often heard. And I'm sorry. But that's how I understand it because of the crowd that's there and my understanding of the culture in which Jesus preached these two. Would he do them today? I don't know. Did he do them in the first century? Yes. We're going to close with this. The word blessed. Okay? 
I have a fundamental issue with a um, couple of authors, and including my Common English Bible, who have the, um, the understanding that when Jesus said blessed, he was talking about happy. This is not the, there was an author um, who wrote a few years ago, the book was called, I don't remember who wrote it though, Richard, The Be Happy Attitudes. Was that Jim Moore? Or was that Robert Schuller? Was it Moore? Either one. I think it was, I don't know. Yeah, because I like Jim Moore. Um, he's a good Methodist. Because um, that is not right. A, these are, happy is not blessed, and these are not attitudes. Okay? You are not, Jesus, I don't think Jesus is saying to you, you should walk around being all poor in spirit. What does that mean? That's not what this is about. Now, the word, the Greek word that is used for blessed is a word um, called makrios. And makrios can be translated f- to, to, to joy. Okay? But in the Jewish understanding, that is not what a blessing is. If you are given a blessing in the Jewish world, first century, and even today, the person giving you the blessing is not saying, be happy. It's not what it is. And if you're poor in spirit, if you're being persecuted, if you're in mourning, if you're hungry for righteousness and thirsting for righteousness, then Jesus standing on the side of a mountain, or sitting, because he were to preach sitting down, because that's what they did. Jesus sitting on the side of the mountain says to you, happy are you, you would have gotten up and walked out. Because you would not be happy. Nor would you see happiness in your near future. If you are a slave, if you are an outcast, if you are a loser, if you are not part of the culture that's in, if you're one of those people who can't be touched, who can't be talked to in public, if you're a leper or a prostitute or a tax collector, and Jesus says, oh, you're just going to be happy, you're going to, I'm out. In the Jewish understanding, as I understand it, like I said, my understanding after talking to rabbis, trying to figure out what this was, when the, when the Jewish person gives you the blessing, A, it's the biggest gift he can give you, by the way, the blessing. B, it is not wishing you happy life. Have a blessed day means, in today's world, have a happy day. Have a joyful day. In the Jewish mind, the word blessing, the blessed that Jesus was talking about, my belief, is more of a divine, I am with you. It is a reminder that God is on your side, as I like to put it. And for people who were on the side of the mountain when Jesus was teaching, the losers, the outcasts, the the, the forgotten ones, the slaves, those without anything, for them to hear, if you are poor in spirit, God is still on your side. If you are the hopeless, God is on your side. That's what he's talking about. When we do the blessing, the benediction, because that's a more 
uh, normal word in the liturgical world, but all the benediction is is a blessing. So the last thing you're hearing as you leave a worship service is a blessing to remind you that God goes with you, that God is on your side, that no matter what you go through this week, this coming week, God is on your side. That's what the blessing is. That's how I'm approaching the Beatitudes. Happy, joyful, doesn't do it for me. Because if I'm on the side of the mountain and I'm miserable and God and Jesus says, hey, you're going to be happy, that implies I'm going to be happy in eternity. I need blessing now. And if you're one of those people who gather to hear Jesus on that day, you needed a reason to get up the next morning. And the reason was because God is on your side. God hasn't forgotten. So that's the angle. Anybody want to talk about that? Oh. But then the choir would be saying, how come you're doing on Wednesday night? Then Matt would be mad at me. Richard said you could skip disciple. <laughs> you already know it. Anybody questions on how we're going to approach this? And if it, if and like I said, you don't have to buy into my understanding. I'm, I'm, I'm really okay with that. Um, and it does, but for me, it sets up the whole Sermon on the Mount. Just... Now we're going to go over that because each one's different. Because each one is really significantly, my opinion, significantly different. I understand what Richard's saying is, well, are the, is this the formula? Um, not, not, it's not really a formula. Yeah. Yeah, there's... There are some... There are some, there are some that say this is how you might, this is how you're going to live in the kingdom, and there's these others that say if this is where you are, you're still part of the kingdom. Remember the two burning questions: What is the kingdom of God like, and who's qualified to get in? Who's getting in, and what's it like? And what Jesus does, I think, in the Beatitude and the rest of the Sermon Mount, is answer those two questions. If Dallas Willard is correct, if Dallas Willard who was always correct, I think, one of the most brilliant writers um, ever, and if he is correct in his understanding of the two burning questions of the first century, Jesus answers them in the Beatitudes and then follows up with the, with the um, rest of the sermon. So. Yes, ma'am. Okay. You have the answer? Okay, cool. Because um, we've been looking for the answer. Uh, I think God's world is like um, being blessed. You're, and you're, it's not just like being happy, you're being blessed. Yes. And um, who's qualified to get in? Um, you believe in God. You go to church. You, you, you pray to God. And 
I'll buy that. <laughs> You're a rock star. Don't come back next week. They're taking all the answers. Uh, what she said, and I wish I had a microphone, is, um, and I love it because it was just so, it was just, I'm going to interpret. You were speaking in tongues, I'm going to interpret. <laughs> um, she said, it's not being, what is kingdom of God like? It's not being happy. It's just, and then a pause, you know, it's just, it's just being blessed, which is no better way to explain it. It's just because it's, the kingdom of God is inexplicable in some ways, right? That's what you meant to say. Good job. And who's qualified to get in? Um, according to God, the least, the last, the lost. The ones that society has said, according to Sermon on the Mount, too bad, so sad. So, how's that? About the rest? See, here's the beautiful part. See, this is where Jesus, I think, was absolutely brilliant. There is no rest. Because we're all the least, the last, and the lost. And the one who gets in is the one who's able to look and see themselves as the least, the last, and the lost. Because those of us who see ourselves that way understand that without the grace of God, we got nothing. To speak like someone from Port Acres. We got nothing. Right? I mean, my understanding of the gospel, it is for those who acknowledge that without the grace of God, they are nothing. And so, the least, the last, and lost is us. We would be the ones on the side of the mountain. And that's how I approach the Sermon on the Mount.